Hey, my name is Ethan, and welcome to Meaningful Things, a podcast where I talk about things that bring me meaning and why I like them. Today's episode is about Judy Sill and her self-titled album. So to get a few housekeeping things out of the way before I start, I have felt like I need to do a better job at sourcing things. So it's my goal to get around to making sure that I have like an official bibliography type thing for the sources I mention. I'll probably still use the same bumper at the end of the podcast for a while that says all sources I use are cited inside of the podcast. I'd like to do a little bit better than that. I feel like it's honestly a responsibility just because it's so easy to say things and not and hear them and not give it a second thought. Today's episode is going to be kind of like the last one. I, I would really like to get to a place where I can sit down and have, have all of these scripted podcasts laid out. I like to come up with my words before I say them, but that's not always realistic with the amount of time I have. And I did want to just keep doing this. So yeah, I'll, I'll just go ahead. So like I said, today's podcast is about Judy Sill and her self-titled album. So in order to understand Judy Sill's album, we kind of have to talk a little bit about Judy herself. So she was born in LA and spent most of her childhood in Southern California. And she had a pretty like stereotypical upbringing, I think. You can find family photos. She grew up in a nuclear family. So at least at the beginning, it appeared to be pretty normal. Her, her dad actually died of pneumonia, as we know from some sources. Rolling Stone talked about it in one of their articles. And she had kind of a shift when her mother married a animator for Tom and Jerry. So that was kind of interesting. After the remarriage, though, she said in a 1972 interview with Rolling Stone that things weren't nearly as happy, and she she kind of became a rebellious teenager archetype involved in, in criminal stuff a little bit. Yeah, and if you look at her, she's grown up in, in the 60s, right? She looks like a pretty stereotypical hippie. She, she reminds me of the librarian from the sequel to a Goofy movie, if, <laughs> if that makes any sense. But yeah, uh, she pretty early traveled and, and played dive bars. She, she learned piano growing up. And yeah, she she got pretty heavy into drugs, LSD specifically, and she moved in with a LSD dealer. She married a pianist, but she was spending a lot of her time feeling this uh, drug addiction she had. She was pretty dependent on heroin, but but she she resulted to lots of things. She was a robber for a while, and she alluded to the fact that she was involved in prostitution. So uh, she has she has a quote here, um, saying uh, a quote that one of her friends remembers, uh, where she said, "You know that old joke when someone's doing an armed robbery and they say, okay, mother sticker, this is a that was actually me.'" She always had this pretty pretty lighthearted demeanor about her, and even even as a robber and as a prostitute, right, she was a very soft and artistic soul, which I think goes against a lot of our perceptions for what those things are. She joined Asylum Records, which was run by David Geffen, and she put out her first album, self-titled Judy Sill, and two years later put out a second album called Heart Food. We're gonna focus on the first album because that's that's 
kind of my favorite. But unfortunately, she did, after all of this happened, after she had released all of her music, die of a heroin over. There is, a, I believe, it's either Washington Post, no, it's the New York Times, who in their obituary overlooked no more, Judy Sill, singer whose life was cut short, says that the medical examiner ruled the death as a suicide. A bunch of her friends always thought that the quote-unquote note found near her body, which was a, quote, meditation on rapture, the hereafter, and the innate mystery of life, might have just been part of her diary. She was a very existential and spiritual person. And that's a pretty big theme in her music. She's, she's a singer-songwriter. Um, if you were to just, like, hear it, in passing, it sounds very much like a Lilith Fair folk revival musician, Carol King, Joni Mitchell. And she gets lumped in with a lot of those female singer-songwriters from the 70s that sang folk music, but she has this really interesting voice in her music. As Pitchfork notes, she idolized J.S. Bach, which is something that is pretty evident in her music. I'll play a clip in just a second from her song, The Archetype Man, which has this very balky counterpoint feeling in the vocal line. Her music is interesting because it's Christian in illusion. It, it, there's lots of illusion to Christian themes, redemption, rapture, heart, pure, sin. One song is literally called Jesus Was a Crossmaker, which is a pretty awesome metaphor for coming up from the bottom, which is obviously something that she admittedly knew very well. The chorus of Jesus was a cross maker. Here's, here's, one, of, here's one of the bridges leading into the chorus. One time I trusted a stranger because I heard his sweet song and he was gently, and it was gently enticing me. Though there was something wrong, but when I turned, he was gone. Blinding me, his heart, his song <laughs> blinding me, his song remains reminding me He's a bandit and a heartbreaker. Oh, but Jesus was a crossmaker, which I don't think is true, but is a pretty great metaphor. I, I haven't been able to find anything because I searched about it. And if you listen to the live recording, she says how there is a pretty interesting anecdote that she found that Jesus was a crossmaker. And I, I think that's a really great metaphor for rebounding. So yeah, to, to talk about her self-titled album, it starts off with Crayon Angels, and it has, and it has this very, it's almost like Art Garfunkel. There's, there's, there's orchestration on it, like, like flute. It's just very, she sounds like Carly Simon a lot too. Just this very easygoing style of music with just light guitar playing lyrics. Crayon Angels songs are slightly out of tune, but I'm sure they're not to blame. Nothing's happened, but I think it will soon. So I sit here waiting for God and a train to the astral plane. So it's it's very entrenched in the in the 60s, 70s metaphysical psychedelia, even though her stuff wasn't psychedelic at all. It was Baroque, honestly. Folk Baroque music with these elaborate and lush string arrangements in the back of her songs, some of which she actually did herself. Some some of the arrangements she had a pretty big hand. But yeah, the album is is full of this Christian iconography and just and just glowing optimism. I'll play a clip from Loping Along Through the Cosmos, which is probably my favorite song right now. So keep on moving or stay by my side. 
tell you a secret I've never revealed However we are is okay So yeah, just this, this optimism, but it doesn't feel grating or melodramatic other than the ways that sometimes the 70s groovy archetype of, of, of a hippie, a Christian hippie can feel grating. It doesn't really come across that way. I know for me, I tend to have a hard time or I almost feel suspicious when things seem unambiguously optimistic, but there's this sort of earned optimism in her music. Like, and that's why I think it's really important to understand the background of her life. She literally was living a life of crime and, and, and doing, like, selling herself, uh, prostituting herself to feed her substance addiction. Like, she, she, as far as stereotypical Dickensian, like, hard lives go, it, it sounds straight out of, like, Les Mis or something. Like, she, she literally, she literally had to try really hard to get by and, 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 Despite all that, there's just this wonderful, beautiful optimism in her music, which isn't to say that it's naive any, anyway. Like I said, it's, it's, this, it's this optimism that's the conclusion of something. Like she's come to an optimistic conclusion. But there's beautiful moments of, of tension, like the line in Archetypal Man that I referenced earlier um, that's, that's very Bach-y that I'll play now. So yeah, the album the album has has lots of great stuff on it. She has this very twang in her voice. It's it's country in an old school country type of way. Songs like Ridge Rider that that totally have a like clopping bum type beat to it in the background. Like it's great. After the release of her album, like I said, she um, spent some time and she worked on her second album. But she had she had a pretty pretty rough end to her life as well. Kind of the definition of fading into obscurity. It's it's said that some of her friends didn't even know that she had died, and she did die, as I mentioned, from a heroin overdose until years, years later, until she was finally mentioned in the Washington Post and the New York Times. There was a small segment in the Washington Post that was a kind of, she was mentioned in this Washington Post piece. I can't find it, but it was, it was a, uh, it was a kind of short homage to David Geffen at Asylum Records. And there was only one sentence that mentioned her. And it's pretty disgusting. Like it, it calls her just like a hippie prostitute stoner, like in, in all of these just very reductive stereotypes. And it's, it's very sad. Yeah, I mean, her, her parents, both died when she was relatively young, her mom when she was 20, and her father of pneumonia when she was only eight. So 
He had a pretty rough upbringing and, and played pretty obscure for a while. Some people at the record label didn't know she was until the year after, and, and some friends reportedly not until dozens of years after. But Judy Sill kind of has had a moment recently where some of her stuff has been uncovered. Haley Williams of Paramore did some covers on her live streams in the middle of the pandemic. Lynn manuel Miranda has been said to be a fan of her, um, and she's had covers. Greta Gerwig has included her music. and. Yeah, she she remains this kind of mystical, ethereal figure who was a true musician involved in kind of an Elliot Smith way in, in crafting the orchestrations. More than just a songwriter, a poet, she was she was interested in the texture of the music. Pitchfork sort of compares her to Brian Wilson and uses the phrase teenage symphony to God, and that's really what it is, is it's this very spiritual it's very optimistic and very tragic how she died, but it but it it lives on. I'm gonna play a little clip from Abracadabra, which is the triumphant, very 70s closer on her album. Abracadabra, here's the key to the kingdom. See. I just really love the slurry violins on her songs. It's a very unique characteristic. So I need to be careful here because I don't want to paint the picture that, or I don't I don't want people to believe that this is all to Judy Sill. There, there are much better biographical things you can find on the internet from, like I said, Pitchfork and The Times and The Guardian and Rolling Stone and The Post. But at least some understanding of it, and hopefully it's not a reductive understanding of the tragic young death of the troubled artist, is necessary for understanding her, her music, her very optimistic, very empowering music that was unique and, at least to me, not sappy in a way that was off-putting, and that's pretty rare, especially coming from the 70s. So yeah, I, I think that... Judy's music is, is just beautiful. Her second album is also amazing. Lots of the same religious themes, but a good a good summation of, of Judy Sill's music and how it is meaningful to me is, is her attitude through all of the very outward and definitive struggles she had. Like the types of struggles we think of when we're trying to come up with a list of potential. The chorus, as I already played, of Lopin' Along Through the Cosmos. So keep on moving or stay by my side. Either way, I'll tell you a secret I've never revealed. However we are is okay. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Ethan Kendrick. Under Title 17, Section 107 of the United States Code, this commentary and small appropriate usage of the source material are protected speech under the Fair Use Doctrine. While I try to be as accurate as possible in the information I cite, please feel free to contact me if you think you have found an error. All sources used during the commentary are cited as such during the piece itself. Thank you for listening.